The Going Viral podcast from HealthEd shares the latest information on COVID-19 from authoritative voices and leading experts. You can find all episodes at healthed.com.au or if you're a registered health professional, you can listen on the HealthEd app as well as access many educational resources to support your professional development and practice. HealthEd's face-to-face seminars are starting up again in 2022. And we hope that you will be able to join us for a day of high quality learning with a lineup of great speakers and important topics in women's and children's health. I'll be chairing a number of these events and I look forward to seeing you there. Register at healthed.com.au. Hello and welcome to Health Ed's Going Viral. I am Dr. David Lim. It is Friday, the 15th of July. Recently, we have seen in Australia cases of diphtheria in children. We had thought that this disease had been eliminated in Australia thanks to widespread childhood vaccination. Diphtheria is a serious disease that, more than 100 years ago, was a common cause of fatality in childhood. Why has it come back? Do we need to be concerned? What should we look for in our practices when we see the next child with flu-like symptoms? In this interview, Associate Professor Paul Griffin discusses this in more detail. Professor Griffin, tell us about yourself. Yeah, hi. Thanks very much for having me. Uh, Paul Griffin's my name. I'm an infectious diseases physician and clinical microbiologist, uh, predominantly working as the director of infectious diseases at the MATA here in Brisbane, and also have a few roles, particularly in uh, clinical trials, being the, the medical director of Nucleus Network. And it's my pleasure to chat to you today about diphtheria. Yes, Paul, thank you very much, because diphtheria is something that most GPs, in fact, probably all GPs in Australia, have never really encountered. So what is it and what should GPs know about it? Yeah, look, thanks. It's a, it's a fascinating infection and one that I would have hoped would be uh, confined to the history books by now, given how effective our vaccine is. But, you know, this, along with some other vaccine preventable diseases, unfortunately, continue to pose challenges for us for a variety of reasons. This one is actually a bacterial infection and it's a, an infection in the more severe cases of the respiratory tract. So it's transmitted, I guess, in some ways similar to some other respiratory bacterial infections and typically presents with uh, respiratory symptoms, things like uh, uh, cough and sore throat and general symptoms, including fevers, for example. The, the challenge with this one is not only can it uh, infect the, the respiratory tract, but it also can produce a really nasty toxin. And it's that toxin that can go on to the, the more severe manifestations, including forming a really nasty membrane over the respiratory tract that can make it hard to breathe and cause really nasty throat swelling. Again, that can make it difficult to breathe. And then has really terrible systemic effects, including things like myocarditis, other cardiac manifestations, and even neurological problems as well. And it's through the mediation of that toxin in which it can be fatal. So, you know, this is an infection that you know, remains rare, but as we're hearing about a bit more at the moment, when it does cause invasive infection, can be very serious. When you look at some of the symptoms, they are very much like the other infections you, you're going to get in winter. So 
how are we going to really tell the difference between someone with a cough and sore throat and fevers between diphtheria and the more, if you like, common viruses we have now? Look, it's a great question because there are so many of these infections that present so similarly. And I guess that's where the, the broad history really comes in. And, you know, while we used to focus on vaccination history predominantly in paediatrics, I think as there's more adults who, who might not be fully vaccinated, it's an important way of risk stratifying for, for certain infections. So finding out if someone is fully vaccinated is really important. And then there's strong uh, epidemiological links. I mean, at the moment, a lot of our cases in Australia are still uh, imported. So, uh, and it might be that they're imported in an asymptomatic contact. Someone who might be fully vaccinated could bring this germ back into Australia and then cause infection in a contact who's not vaccinated. So it's about that really thorough history, particularly around vaccination status and any consistent epidemiology, including you know travel to, to Africa, India, Indonesia, and even some of the Pacific Islands. Uh, some of our neighbours also have relatively high rates of this bacteria. What's your definition of fully vaccinated adults? Yeah, look, this is something that's uh, been incorporated into our vaccine schedule for, for quite some time. And fortunately, we had a great uptake of this vaccine. You know, we until recently had, you know, perhaps uh, I think it's up to 94% of uptake with this vaccine. So it's, um, I think it's a, a really big success story that this vaccine was obviously uh, combined. Uh, so diphtheria, tetanus, pertussis. Uh, it's funded on the National Immunisation Program. So kids typically get it um, at two, four, six, and 18 months of age. Uh, and then booster doses, uh, typically at around four years and, and somewhere in the 12 to 15 years of age. Uh, and then typically, um, periodically thereafter, depending a little bit on risk and things like tetanus prone injuries or potential exposure to pertussis might also drive boosters. So, uh, you know, as I say, we've had really high uptake of, of these sort of vaccines, but there are some particularly pockets in our country where that, that level may have plateaued or, or even declined. And, and that does facilitate a, a bit of a resurgence of some of these vaccine preventable diseases. Clearly, the history taking is very important. Are there any physical uh, examinations or findings uh, that may also be relevant in, for a patient presenting with a cough, sore throat and uh, fever? I guess the, the main thing and, and you know, reflecting uh, a fairly latter endpoint in the process is that you can actually see a, a really nasty membrane in the back of the throat sometimes, a, a thick grey coating that, that gets referred to as a pseudomembrane. And um, my, my uh, experience with this infection is that we, we had someone who presented a number of times with those fairly general symptoms that you're alluding to and was a bit of a diagnostic dilemma, but represented. And uh, I think it was a, uh, an ENT registrar came and had a look and said, that looks exactly like the, the textbooks for diphtheria and immediately uh, the, the right things were done in terms of the diagnosis. So um, it, it's a sort of a, a thick gray coating um, that, that can actually be visualized in, in the back of the throat. But we wouldn't expect there to be many people who will actually ever see that in our country owing to that really high vaccination rate. But mm -hmm. uh, uh, certainly uh, nasty lymphadenopathy, uh, swollen throat, for example. I mean, they're sort of things that I would expect, uh, you know, most people seeing someone who, who had those more severe manifestations to, to, to fairly quickly know something wasn't right. Just as a matter of interest, Paul, when was the last time we had a death from diphtheria in Australia? Um, I believe it's been um, some 30 years since uh, we've had a, a death from respiratory diphtheria in children, but uh, certainly there was uh, one in Queensland in 2011, 
and, and I believe there was another one in, in 2018. So um, we have had, unfortunately, some, some deaths. Um, and, uh, you know, while obviously they're not high numbers, given we have such an effective vaccine, you know, that, that is, uh, in my mind, a tragedy still. Now, you mentioned just quickly um, neurological symptoms in myocarditis. I suspect the presentation of myocarditis is reasonably well known to GPs, but what should we be looking out for and what sorts of neurological symptoms are we going to expect if there was one? Yeah, usually those cardiac or neurological manifestations are, are relatively late. So, you know, you, you would know something very significant was up by the, the severity of the respiratory disease, most likely at that point in time. But the, the cardiac things can be uh, the typical presentation of myocarditis or even significant cardiac arrhythmias. And in terms of the neurological manifestations, things like cranial and peripheral nerve palsies uh, mm -hmm. can also be part of that presentation. How do we confirm this diagnosis in a less severe case? So you've got a suspicion now. How do we confirm that? So like most bacterial infections, our preferred method of diagnosis is culture. Uh, and typically the yields are, are quite good because it is a, an organism that uh, produces a toxin. Uh, and that also gets rid of a lot of competing normal flora. So usually we can see this fairly quickly on, on uh, appropriately collected throat swabs. So in addition to that thorough history of uh, epidemiology and, and vaccination status, uh, a throat swab for, for microbiology. And you know, we always, when we get these sort of samples in the lab, we want to know if there's a clinical suspicion of, of something like this. So based on that, that history or epidemiology, so that we can look specifically for it and expedite a diagnosis from the laboratory perspective. So you're suggesting that we put down query diphtheria on our requests? Absolutely. The, the more information we get on request forms into the microbiology laboratory, the, the quicker uh, and, and more effectively we can often, uh, you know, find these sort of organisms. And, uh, you know, of course, given the, the significance, both from a clinical and public health perspective, you know, this is something that the lab, lab takes very seriously, uh, would be notified uh, and uh, appropriate public health escalation would also occur. But, uh, you know, for something as significant as this, it's always great to, to flag that with the laboratory so they can find it as quickly as possible. Now, whilst we're waiting for the results, Paul, would you be treating, and if so, what with and at what dose, and what sorts of public health uh, messages and instructions should we give our patients and family? Yeah, so, I mean, this is something that, you know, really on legitimate suspicion should be escalated quite quickly. And, and I would think that this would be uh, something that um, an immediate call uh, to, to one of three people would be the first step, whether it be uh, the local public health physician, uh, the local infectious diseases team or, or even the local microbiologist in the clinical microbiology laboratory. And, and they'll guide you through the process because there's a, a few things that we want to happen in parallel. Of course, uh, treatment of the patient would be the key. And we'd, we'd usually do that uh, under the care of an infectious diseases team. Th these are regarded as typically quite susceptible organisms. And so uh, even things like uh, penicillins would traditionally be used. But um, notably in the, in the Brisbane case uh, in 2011, that was actually quite antimicrobial resistance. So there, there are some considerations for antimicrobials there. Of course, we have an antitoxin. Um, and if there's any thought to the, the presence of toxin-mediated disease, uh, getting that antitoxin in a timely manner is also a critical part of, uh, of that process. But in those severe cases, it's uh, certainly uh, tertiary-level multidisciplinary input, maybe even involving uh, ear, nose and throat, uh, airway management, et cetera. So uh, again, it's usually something that's escalated quite rapidly, um, but in the process, public health will also 
um, you know, do their excellent work to, to try and work out, uh, you know, both a, a source and what other public health interventions are, are needed to reduce the, any further spread. There is a period of time between getting the swabs out and getting results back. In a case that's not too severe, are you actually saying that we ought not yet to treat until we can confirm the diagnosis or do we actually start informing people when in fact the vaccination history uh, informs us the patient is at risk and the symptoms are consistent? Okay, it's always challenging uh, with those sort of uh, circumstances to, to know exactly the best course of action. But my, my general advice is if you think it really could be, even if you're not certain, I would always favour asking the question first rather than waiting until you realise you've missed an opportunity to intervene. So if there was a, a strong clinical suspicion based on a consistent presentation in someone who was high risk because they weren't vaccinated and, and maybe had some appropriate epidemiology in terms of travelling themselves or having been in contact with a, a return traveller from an area with higher prevalence, then I would think it's very reasonable to ask the question of either public health, infectious diseases or, or clinical microbiology, just to get that ball rolling. And look, it, it may turn out in the fullness of time to be a, a more common organism of less public health significance, but at least then you haven't missed an opportunity. And so, you know, I think it's better to err on the side of caution in those sort of circumstances than realise you've, you've missed an opportunity. Paul, I think it's such an important message because when you think about it, uh, as a GP, we now face weird things like Japanese encephalitis, monkeypox and diphtheria, things that we probably in New South Wales haven't seen for ever, really. Oh, exactly right. It highlights a really important challenge at the moment in that, you know, in terms of public health and infectious diseases, we, we need to be aware of some quite rare things that we really expect not to ever see, but don't want to ever miss. And, mm -hmm. and that's a real challenge at the moment. So you have to have a, you know, index of suspicion that's sufficient that you find these things, but uh, I guess you don't want to be calling public health or infectious diseases for, for every rash or cough that you get, um, you know, given the, the volumes that, that are being seen. So look, and uh, from the other side of the, the fence, from a, a hospital uh, infectious diseases physician, we, we're always happy to take calls if people are concerned, because as I say, we'd much rather be able to provide a reassuring message um, than to get a call a few days later that there's uh, uh, you know, more cases than there would have otherwise been or a, or a worse presentation than there would have otherwise been. So, you know, I completely appreciate it. It's a, it's a big challenge. And I guess that's that's why we're here to help as are the, you know, the clinical microbiologists and, and the public health teams. And, and educating the GP is great value because we understand that the monkeypox cases in Australia were picked up by GPs. Uh, exactly right. And I think, you know, it, it shows, you know, exactly how our health system works is that our GPs are truly on the front line. They have such a valuable role to play in, you know, early recognition of uh, of these sorts of things. And, you know, again, coming back to the, the volume of things they have to deal with at the moment, um, you know, it really is a, is a credit to them that, you know, the role they're playing in all of this. And, you know, um, again, from a hospital perspective, we appreciate just how, how uh, overwhelmed so many of our GP colleagues are having to deal with all these things at the moment. And, you know, once again, that's why we, we're here to help wherever we can. The $64,000 question now, Paul, we've had people or little parts of or pockets of Australia where vaccination rates are not high. We've had people travelling overseas to the at-risk countries but why is it now that we're seeing the cases? 
Yeah, look, this is, a, is an excellent question. And, you know, certainly in, in certain pockets, the, the vaccine coverage is definitely contributing. And, you know, th this is a disease that's prevented very effectively by vaccination, doesn't completely eradicate uh, the, the prospect for things like carriage. And so th that's one of our challenges is people that are fully vaccinated can be asymptomatic, can carry this organism and then pass it on to people that might be susceptible because they're not vaccinated. And, you know, that vaccination coverage at the moment is another whole topic in itself. You know, we have, um, I believe it's 17 vaccine preventable diseases on our schedule. And traditionally, Australia's done a fantastic job of very high coverage uh, of that childhood uh, vaccination schedule, 94, 95%. But, uh, you know, obviously there's a different perception of vaccination at the moment. People are after different levels of information and uh, I think have a different uh, perception of risk because there's been so much discussion of uh, vaccine-related adverse events, most of which I would think is probably misinformation. So, look, I completely appreciate for, for many parents it's, it's a challenging decision because, you know, obviously they want to do what's right for their children and in the context of so much uh, challenging information, that, that's become a, a more difficult decision at the moment. But, but my main message there is we need to make sure people know where to get the right messages about vaccination and you know unfortunately social media and and other platforms are are really spreading a lot of uh, misinformation that's making it hard uh, in that area so I think we all need to do a bit more to make sure people understand that there is good information out there about vaccination that the benefits are clear and that the risks if we don't do that well are, are exactly uh, this sort of thing. It would appear to me Paul as if we've entered a new phase uh, wherein how we engage patients and their parents about the importance of immunisation might need to be changed. In the past, it was very easy to say, oh, your child's immunisation is due and they will bring the child. Uh, now it appears as if there needs to be a whole lot more information and resources uh, that's required. Are we preparing ourselves to give this information in the future to patients and family? I think we're starting to, and I think that that challenge is being increasingly recognised. I mean, again, you know, health literacy is probably something that's um, been increased positively in response to, to the pandemic, but also um, is going to place increasing demands on people that provide uh, counselling around vaccines, because now people want to know what the efficacy is, what the clinical trials have been, uh, what platform it is, etc. So, you know, those discussions have become more complicated and more challenging, and I think we do need to rise to that challenge and make sure we do have have the right resources uh, readily available. Um, and also, again, in the context of the, the pressures on the healthcare system and on GPs and pharmacists at the moment, you know, the time that that's going to take is, is not insignificant. So well, we need to make sure we're resourced appropriately to do all those things because, you know, the, the benefits are there. It's a, it's a worthwhile undertaking, of course, um, but, but it is going to take a bit of a change in approach to how things have been done previously. I'm so glad you appreciate what it's like from our side because it is, it is getting more complicated. Can I just ask you to go back and think through the key messages you'd like to give us GPs regarding diphtheria? I think it's a really important infection to have an awareness of, not an expectation that you're going to see it commonly, but just an index of suspicion that's sufficient that the, the chance of missing it would be very low. Uh, to understand the, the way to try and work out that risk, particularly relating to, to vaccine status and consistent epidemiology. And then I guess just knowing that this is something we would certainly encourage having a you know, really low threshold to escalate uh, and escalate uh, in one of many ways, local hospital, 
public health, infectious diseases, microbiology, all of those colleagues would be happy to assist with that escalation if you if you thought that you had a case. It's so nice to know we're not alone. Uh, absolutely. And, you know, I, I think that's it's a really important message that with this infection, obviously the pandemic still happening, other things like monkeypox and even Japanese encephalitis, you know, we, we need to work together. And, you know, the GPs are on the front line. They're our best way of seeing what's happening out there and finding these things early. Uh, and so if we all work together, that's our best chance of, uh, of making sure we pick these things up and minimise the impact. Last thing before we go, is this a great chance and opportunity to look at our patients who have not been fully vaccinated to encourage that? Oh, absolutely. This is a great example of a disease that we would really hope we wouldn't have to see in a country like ours, but, but obviously we are. There are many others such as uh, uh, measles uh, and even whooping cough or pertussis, you know, something we would have expected greater levels of control than we see at the moment. And so, you know, that, that is certainly something we should strive for and, and make sure that, you know, discussing vaccines is something that we do routinely. Well, Professor Griffin, I just thank you for your time and for this very important podcast. Look, it's been a pleasure. Thanks for having me. Just a quick reminder as we wrap up to encourage you to register for the next webcast where you can always catch a high quality lineup of speakers and topics that HealthEd has put together for you. HealthEd webcasts are carefully created to provide high quality video and audio so that you have the best possible learning experience. It's free, you get CPD points, and it's all delivered directly to the digital device of your choice, wherever you choose to be. Register now at healthed.com.au. You can claim RACGP CPD points for listening to this podcast using the self-claim option. Log into your account on the RACGP website, go to the CPD section and click on self-claim.